and ask our God and Father that he would remove me from the process and speak his word faithfully. Because it's a so near and far through. Father, that as we are here hearing your word proclaimed, that we would look for areas in our lives that are inconsistent with the truths of your word and that we would seek to change those. Lord, show us sin in our lives that we could repent of it. Show us areas where we can grow in greater obedience and holiness and enable us to grow. Father, I ask you that you would not allow anything that I say to distract from your truth. Lord, let my words be quickly forgotten and may your words forever reverberate in the hearts and minds of all those here. Father, we love you. We need you. We ask this, we are able to ask this because of your son, because of what he has done for us, the sacrifice that he paid to buy us. And so we ask in his name. Amen. Well, I can do it myself. If you've ever had children or been around children, you have heard that phrase. I can do it myself. It is most frequently said Christmas morning, is it not? Child opens a present. Child, grandchild, they open the present and they see this amazing thing in the box and you say, let me help you open that. I can do it myself. Unbeknownst to that child, it requires a PhD in engineering, a hacksaw, and potentially a blowtorch to undo the modern marketing and packaging that they do on these toys. You can open a pair of scissors easier than you can open a child's toy. It doesn't make any sense. This phrase also is often repeated among the um, males in the room, right? Wrong with the car, what do we do? We pop the hood, I can do it myself. And if your wife is anything like mine, she will indulge you and say, go ahead and try. And then hours later, when my knuckles are bloody, and I've put back all the pieces except for the extra ones, right? You don't need those extra bolts and pieces. Those were, the auto manufacturer just puts those in there as spare parts, right? Um, at some point, it doesn't help that I'm looking where the engine is when the problem's in the transmission. But I can do it myself. Yeah, I can call AAA and get it towed myself. That's what I can do myself. But here's the thing. There are some things that you just cannot do yourself. And to demand that you can is the epitome of foolishness and of pride. Let me set the scene for our text today. We're going to be in Mark 8. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 8. So we're in Mark 8, which means we're in Israel. It's around 30-ish A.D. Israel at this point is a little smaller than the size of the state of New Jersey, to give it perspective. And it has approximately somewhere between a half million to three million people living in it. So that's about a tenth to a third of the population of New Jersey. Jesus has been very active in the book of Mark up to this point. So far, he has healed countless diseases. He has cast out demons. He's healed a man with leprosy. He healed a paralytic. 
He healed a man with a withered hand. He calmed the raging sea. He cast out a legion of demons. He healed a woman who had incurable bleeding. He raised a girl from the dead. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He walked on water. He healed a deaf man. And he fed 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. And we're only in chapter 8. In just one of those feeding miracles where he was feeding thousands of people, they were only counting the men when they said 4,000 and 5,000. So if you count the women and children... He could have fed potentially 1% of the population. Potentially one out of every 100 people was there to see that. Do you think people knew who Jesus was? Yes, they knew who Jesus was. With all the miracles happening in Galilee, you can bet that news was spreading like wildfire. There was truly free food. Truly free health care. Truly free education. This isn't someone else's footing the bill. Jesus just makes it out of nowhere. Do you wonder why they wanted to make him king? Doesn't surprise us at all. This is the protagonist of our story. This is the hero of Mark 8. He is recognized by everyone. Everyone knows what he can do, or at least some of what he can do. He's exerted his dominance over nature and he's exerted his dominance over disease. The only question is, what in the world is he going to do next? Our text today is Mark 8, verses 11 through 13. Jesus had just fed 4,000, and he gets in a boat and arrives at Dalmanutha. This is a unique little story because it seems almost like an actionless transition scene. You know, in a movie or a show, when it cuts away from the characters and it shows like a train moving across the screen, or it moves up to the clouds and the clouds move by, it's kind of showing a, just the passage of time. A movie or show could move on just as well without that, but it's just artistic to add some flair to the story and to show passage of time. That's how this text reads at first. That's how it looks. But what we are going to find when we delve into these few verses, we are going to find that there are some very deep truths even in these three verses. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. So Mark 8, starting in verse 10. And immediately he, that is Jesus, entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Do you see what I mean? I mean, if you're reading that in your daily devotions, you're kind of like, all right, let's keep reading. Like, there's not, nothing jumps out immediately from the page to be like, ooh, yeah, this is what I'm going to meditate on today. But here's the thing. We know that all Scripture is inspired by God, right? Scripture tells us, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. So what does this text do for us? Why did God have this recorded? And in Mark, doesn't waste ink. None of the scripture wastes ink. But 
Mark is very succinct. He's, if you look through and read through the book of Mark, you will see he uses the word immediately, constantly. And immediately this happened. And then he jumps to the next thing. Immediately, just constant action. It's the first gospel that I read to my children. Because kids lose interest very easily, right? They, they like the highlights. And so it's like, well, Mark's the highlights. In the book of highlights, why this? It doesn't make sense unless it does. And we're going to see that it does make sense. Because rather than being a know-nothing scene, when read properly, this text is a nail-biter. While only a couple of verses long, in it we see conflict. We see passionate sorrow. We see the antagonist's stubborn demand, I can do it myself. Let's walk through this text as the scene unfolds. So Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. And as they arrive at Dalmanutha, the scripture says, And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. This is the first major letdown of the story. Jesus' boat is just landing in Dalmanutha. There's hope, right? Jesus, the one who heals, the one who feeds, the one who teaches, has just arrived. What is he going to do in Dalmanutha? But instead of coming to him for help, they ran out to argue with him. The hopes were immediately dashed that these Pharisees were going to be any different than the Pharisees that were in Jerusalem. They should have run humbly to Jesus. They should have said, Jesus is coming. Let me run back to my house and get my sick. Let me bring them to the one who can heal and who has healed. But they don't. They leave their sick at home. We can handle that. Right? And they came out arguing against Jesus. Instead of coming and saying, Jesus, teach us about God, they come out arguing with Jesus. Now, theology, we can do that ourselves. We don't, we don't need you, Jesus. I can do it myself. The picture we get here is that Jesus and the disciples have just arrived. I can almost see it now. Jesus, ankle deep in water, still wiping the sand off of his hands from trying to pull the boat in with the disciples. And the Pharisees just run up to him and start arguing with him. You can imagine Peter, right? Peter's either in the front or in the back. That's how he goes, right? He's not, he's not in the middle. He's either pushing from the back or he's pulling from the front. And you can see him rolling his eyes being like, oh, come on, guys. Give the teacher time to at least sit down. And that's how life goes, right? <laughs> we get hit right out the gate sometimes. What was the Pharisees' argument? What were they arguing to Jesus? Well, they said, Jesus, we demand a sign from heaven from you. Mark 8 says, they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now note, these Pharisees were not seeking a sign because they were like Gideon, right? Gideon was like, God, I want to obey. I just don't have enough faith for this. Help me out. God, could you please give me a sign because I want to believe. And then God gave him a sign. And he's like, could you give me another sign, right? This is not the Pharisees. They came out with a sign, demanding a sign because they said, no, no, no. Jesus, we are the arbiters of truth. We are the judge in this relationship. Come and prove to us that you have something of worth to say to us. And just the, the sheer arrogance of that. 
the Pharisees are trying to pick a fight with Jesus. Can you understand the audacity of this? They're the ones who came out to Jesus. They came to him and started an argument. And they demanded a sign? Really? Really? You're going to demand a sign from Jesus? Remember, we're in Mark 8, so Mark 1 through 7 has already happened. All those things he's already done. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. What more? The deaf hear. The blind see. What more do you want from him? No, they don't want a sign to help their faith. They want to try to trip him up. See, here's the thing. If Jesus had bowed to their demands, if Jesus had said, sure, I'll give you a sign, at their request, what that would have done is that would have put him in a category of prophet. Okay, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Jesus was a prophet. Like, we know he's the greatest prophet. He's prophet, priest, and king, right? But if they could get him to legally put himself in the category of prophet, if he says anything wrong, what do they get to do to him? They get to pick up stones and kill him, right? Old Testament law says if someone claims to be a prophet and says that there's something from God, well, you think, well, that's not that big of a deal because Jesus is never going to say anything wrong. Oh, oh, just wait. Deuteronomy has more than one teaching there. Deuteronomy also says that if someone does claim to be a prophet and gives a prophecy, and it does come true, but they teach anything that is against Yahweh and against the Scriptures, then they are also a false prophet and should be stoned to death. The Pharisees in Dalmanutha didn't care if Jesus was able to perform the prophecy or not, or a, a miracle, a sign or not. They're like, well, if you say you're going to and you don't, then we get to kill you. If you say you're going to and you do, we're still going to try to kill you. Great, right? We're gonna, <laughs> there's, no, there's no winning on this one. This is a uh, heads I win, tails you lose situation, right? So they're trying to get him to place himself in that category. I can imagine James or John. You remember James and John? They have that nickname, right? Sons of Thunder. Why are they the Sons of Thunder? Well, because they were passionate. They were hotheads. It was one time that they literally asked Jesus. They said, okay, look, this city has rejected you, Jesus. Go ahead and call down fire. Can we do it? Can we call down fire and just burn them all up? And Jesus is like, no. No, you cannot do that. Imagine those two here, right? Some guys are coming out wanting to kill Jesus, saying, give us a sign. James and John in the background being like, Jesus, what is more sign from heaven than fire from heaven? <laughs> Come on, bring fire down and consume them. This would be great. And that's how you and I might respond, right? I mean, if somebody's trying to kill me, all bets are off. But is that how our Lord responds? Does he respond in the same hot-headed way, the same way, puff-up way that we would respond? No. No, he doesn't. Knowing that they wanted to entrap him and kill him. Let's see what he does. Verse 12. And sighing deeply in his spirit. We can envision Jesus looking up from beside the boat and sighing. And the scripture says it's a deep sigh. You have to realize this isn't a sigh of anger. This isn't a sigh of frustration. 
like you or I might have felt. We would be tempted to look at the argumentative people in our lives and be annoyed by their presence. Ugh, why do I have to deal with that person again? But that's not what's going on here. We have to remember, we, we sigh at things because we didn't anticipate them. Right? You drive down the road and you see the gas price and you sigh. Why? Because you didn't anticipate another 20 cents per gallon. Since it was 20 more cents per gallon yesterday. You didn't anticipate it to happen again and again and again, so you sigh. When there's gas shortages or toilet paper shortages, you sigh. Why? Because you don't expect it. You would not sigh if you had your own gas tank at your house that had 1,500 gallons in it. You'd be like, oh, that's interesting, gas price. If you had a storehouse full of toilet paper, you wouldn't go, oh, shortage. You'd, it wouldn't bother you. Right? We sigh out of frustration because we don't know what's going on. But here's the thing. Has there ever been a time in all of history since the beginning that Jesus didn't know what was going on? Nope. From the very beginning, Jesus has known everything. He knew the past perfectly. He knows the present perfectly. He knows the future perfectly. When Jesus got into the boat, before he got into the boat, to go across the lake to Dalmanutha, he knew exactly who would meet him there. Not only did he know who would meet him there, he knew that they would come and meet him. They knew what they would, he knew what they would ask him. He knew the motivation in their heart of what they were going to ask him. This is not a sigh of, oh my goodness, we just wasted a trip across the lake. No, no, no. That's not the sigh here. So what is this sigh? If it's not disbelief, if it's not shock that they would say this, what is it? This sigh is one that carries with it a weightiness that you and I can never fully understand. Jesus' heart is heavily grieved here. His heart breaks for these people whom he created and who are openly and willfully rejecting him. This is the same type of person that Jesus is going to weep over in not too long from here when he looks out over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who killed the prophets. The closest thing I think that you or I could understand, the, the closest analogy for us to understanding this sigh is if you have adult, unbelieving children and you see them making bad choices in life, and you just, you sigh. Why? Because you're angry? No. Are you angry? Maybe, but that's not why you sigh. Is it because you're frustrated? No. Is it disdain, disappointment? No. You sigh because there's nothing else that your heart knows how to do but just sigh at the pain of seeing them do that. You feel a sadness, a weight, a burden, and no other response than a deep sigh is appropriate. Jesus sighed over these people. As a side note, we too should sigh over the unbelieving. It's easy to paint the other side, whoever that other side is, as just wicked people that are going to hell 
and we're okay with that because they've earned it. No, 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 no. Our hearts should break over the fact that people made in the image of God are in open rebellion against Him. There's a tension that we hold in life. When a, when a terrorist like Osama bin Laden comes to justice, right, and is killed by a special operations team, we say, yes, an enemy was killed. Yes, that's true. And there's a, there's a sense in which we can rejoice in that. And at the same time, there's a sense in which our hearts should break, saying, and now he's in hell and has no chance of repenting. We should pray for those whom we yell at the TV screen over. <laughs> we should pray, not just that they would create just laws in our country. Pray for that, yes. But pray that these people would repent. Could you imagine what would happen if the leadership of our country, the presidency, the Senate, Congress, all of them, the House, if they all repented and were saved? It is too little a thing to think about one law or another, or one right or another. We should think of the souls of the men and women in our country and pray for them. But here's the thing. The fact that Jesus sighs over people, it should provide a degree of comfort for us because it shows that our Savior feels we don't serve a God who is far off and unfeeling. No, the one true God chooses to feel. He chooses to allow us to affect him. Jesus here sighs out of a broken heart that understands exactly where these Pharisees are in their heart. They are proud and unbelieving, and Jesus sighs deeply. I have to ask, does he sigh because of you today? Does his heart break over you because you arrogantly think that you get determined to determine who he is and if he is who he claimed to be? Does he sigh at your choice to reject him? Does God weep over you because he knows the path that you are on leads nowhere but to death and hell? Please know that God knows your situation and he specifically cares about you. If you're already a Christian, don't think that your Savior's compassion for you ended when he saved you. He was patient with you before, and he's even more patient with you now. He loves you. He patiently extended grace to those who are in rebellion against him. How much more is he going to patiently extend grace to those who love him? Especially in our failings. Christian, you are a beloved son or daughter of the Most High God. He does not look down on you disdainfully with disappointment. He looks down on you as a loving father who wants to see the best for you. Don't let your failures hold you back. Get up and with God's help, keep pressing forward. But the fact that he cares about you, we have to be careful. Does God care about us? Absolutely. But the fact that he cares about us does not mean that he can be manipulated. The Pharisees came out arrogantly after Jesus. They were trying to test him and entrap him, and he, and he knew them. He knew their hearts. He knew their thoughts. He knew exactly what was going on, and he was unwilling to jump through the hoops that they were demanding of him. His response to their demands were simple. He says, why does this generation seek for a sign? 
Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Essentially, Jesus says, no. And the thing is, you hear stories all the time of people praying to God and trying to negotiate. They say, God, if you will do X, then I will believe. If you will give me that job, if you will get me out of this situation, if you will give me that girl, then I'll believe. Here's the thing. God's answer to that demand is almost always categorically no. Because this demand comes from a perspective that says, God, you and I are equals. There's a negotiation to be had. I have something you want, an eternal soul, and you have something I want. Money, power, influence, whatever, whatever it is, the job. You have something that you can control. I have something I can control. Let's make a deal. God doesn't play that game. He says, no. I hold all the cards and all the chips and all the power. No. See, the thing is, salvation cannot happen that way. Let, let, me, let me repeat that. Salvation cannot happen that way. Making a deal with God. It doesn't work like that. Because if you're making a deal with God, you think that you're negotiating and that you have some power. For a person to have saving faith, they must first realize, I cannot do it myself. They must recognize that their sin is so egregious, so great, so weighty, that they deserve nothing but the just judgment of God, which is an eternity in hell. If a person doesn't understand that they deserve hell, they don't understand salvation. They can't. A gospel presentation that does not include the judgment of God is not a gospel presentation. It's, hey, I've got something that can make your life a little bit better. Yeah, well, so does Walmart. And if it works for me, then it'll work for now, and then we'll try it. We have a church in America that is full of people who think they have great lives, and Jesus is going to be a little fire insurance we're going to tack on at the end, make sure all bases are covered, and we're good. No, they're going to be shocked when they stand before the living God and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Wait, whoa, whoa, Jesus, we made a deal. You didn't. You don't, you don't deal with me. There's no negotiating with me. That's not how this works. It is only when a person comes to the realization that there is nothing they can do that they are ready to start negotiating with God. Because here's what negotiations look like for that person. They say, Father, I have nothing to offer you. I have sinned against you every day of my life. You are absolutely right to condemn me for my wickedness. I know that Jesus came to earth and that he lived a perfect life. And that perfect life is in such contrast to what I lived. Because I should have lived a perfect life, but I failed. And then Jesus died the death that I should have died for my sins. And that after Jesus was buried, that he rose from the dead, proving that he is God. And he tells me that he's willing to take my sinful life and count it as his and credit his perfect life onto my account. Please, God, I need you to save me from the penalty that I have earned. 
Notice what this negotiation does not have. There's absolutely no, I can do it myself in it. It doesn't argue with God. There's no, if you save me, then I'll be a good person and you'll be glad that you saved me. It's a, I've got nothing to offer and I really don't understand why you would be willing to save me, but I'm glad you are. Um, and I'll, I'll take the offer because I don't know if you realize, but I've got nothing, nothing to give you in return. This contrasts so dramatically with the Pharisees' demand, doesn't it? Elsewhere, Jesus talks about the miracles that he had already done. So the, the Pharisees are demanding a sign? Really? Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 21 and following, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The signs that Jesus had already performed were more than enough. And it would have caused incredibly wicked cities like Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom to at least stop their outward sinning, their overt sins. But the men of this time, the men of Capernaum, the men of Chorazin, the men of Bethsaida, they're like, yeah, no, we see that God's here. We don't care. We're still going to keep doing the same sins that we were doing. Now, this type of repentance is kind of like when you have a bunch of teenage boys and a police officer walks in the room. The wickedness in the boy's heart doesn't change, but you know what does change? Their outward actions. Why? Because they're scared. Because there's a cop, right? Jesus is saying, the wicked city, Sodom. If I had done the miracles that I'm doing in you, Capernaum, if I'd done those in Sodom, they at least would have been like, whoa, we recognize God's here. We're going to like at least sin in private. We're not going to be so outgoing in the public square sinning like this. But he's like, but you don't care. You see the power of God among you and you say, yeah, it's fine. We're just going to keep going, doing what we're doing. The signs were not what they needed. In Luke 16, 29 to 31, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And in that story, the rich man finally comes to grips with the fact that he has to remain in hell. But he begs Abraham to send Lazarus back to his dead brothers. And Abraham refuses. The scriptures say, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he, that is the rich man, said, no, 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 Father Abraham, but, but if someone goes back to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The issue with the Pharisees was not missing a sign or just needing one more sign. Jesus had healed all sorts of diseases, calmed the sea, fed thousands with a boy's lunch. What they were missing was faith in Jesus Christ. Their arrogance caused them to argue with Jesus rather than to ask him for help. We're now going to turn to the saddest part of the story. Verse 13. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Jesus left. The Pharisees demanded a sign. Jesus refused. He got back in the boat and he left. Tragically, they had defiantly rejected their only hope of salvation. This would be the scene if this was a movie where 
the music turns melancholy. The camera pans out into the lapping ocean or lapping waves, and the hero's boat fades slowly into the distance with the words still lingering in the air, I don't need your help. I can do it myself. These Pharisees knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew what Jesus had done, and they should have known who he truly was and what he could do and do for them. But instead, they chose to willfully blind themselves to the truth and to reject him. And they did nothing as he left. We want to scream at them, don't we? We want to say, don't let him leave. Run out into the water. If you swim after the boat, I promise you, he will turn around and save you. But they didn't. John 6, 37 is very clear about this. Jesus said, All that the Father give me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. If they had come to him, he would not have turned them away. And if you come to him, he will not turn you away. But don't come thinking you can negotiate. Come recognizing that all you bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all you have to offer. He proved that he was willing to save everyone and anyone in Mark 2. He spent time with tax collectors, with prostitutes, and others who were known sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners like you and me. We cannot be like the Pharisees. We cannot reject him. We must put away our pride and we must recognize that he is God and he is the only way for us to be saved. We who have already trusted him need to remember our need of him. He is more than just the God of our salvation. His sal- Jesus is not just, well, we come to the scriptures, we find a way to get to heaven, boom, we're, go- we're done. No, He is God of our every day, every moment. We need him. There's a song, right? Every hour I need you. And it's true. And here's the thing. You cannot do it yourself. But he can. He can. I'm going to close us in prayer. And then we're going to... um, celebrate. We are going to celebrate the remembrance of our Savior. And why are we going to do that? Because he commanded us to. And we love him. And we want to obey him. Let's pray and then we will celebrate communion. Our great God, we love you. Thank you. Thank you that what we could not do, you did. Thank you that even though we have nothing to bring, you bring everything that is needed for our salvation. Thank you that you do not reject us and turn us away because of our wickedness before we were saved. And Father, thank you that you do not throw us away and reject us even though we continue to sin in many ways. Lord, I ask that we would turn away from our sin, that we would repent of it and turn to you. Father, you are willing. You are willing to save those who have not yet trusted in you and you are always willing to forgive your children our failings. We love you. 
In your son's name we pray. Amen.